basically when people hear about somebody else who's taking their life, then it makes them feel hopeless and then they take their life. Just sure. like when you hear about a celebrity <clears throat> taking their life, then all of a sudden um, hmm. suicides spike. But then on the flip side, when you hear about somebody who uh, has wanted to take their life, but then they find a way to cope and live and thrive, then suicide numbers drop. Oh, wow. Yeah. So wow, that's the importance and value of, uh, of being aware of what you're taking in. Whether it's music, whether it's movies, whether it's uh, what you're reading, because mm-hmm. uh, that's where it started. There's this book in the 18, I want to say early 1800s, and I forget what the guy's name is, but the book became very popular, and a lot of people were reading it, and it was about this guy who ultimately uh, was in love with this woman. She didn't return the love, and so he took his life. And then there was a epidemic of suicides based off of the book. And I say epidemic because not only were people taking their life, they took their life the same way that the guy in the book took wow. it. And they were dressing up as the character before they did it. So that's when they discovered like the power of uh, you know, what you're taking in, what you're reading, and, and, right. and, and you know, how uh, <coughs> encourageable people are. Um, but then on the flip side, there was an, another book that was released like decades later where somebody wanted to take their life and then they found a way to bounce back. Mm-hmm. And he saw suicide levels drop significantly. So even Groundhog's Day, I don't think people remember, but in the movie Groundhog's Day, mm-hmm. he wanted to take his life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, uh, th- you know, every time he came back to life, he figured out how to live life and thrive <coughs> and, and keep going and stuff like that. So I bring all that to say is that Ron Lampert, who I have on the podcast today, you guys are like, who are you talking to, Leo Fox? Um, a very good buddy of mine is on a podcast. And uh, how old are you, 50? 49. 49. 51? Yeah. 50 in April. In April. And you, Ron, have lived a life. And I say that because I feel like I have not lived a life yet. Because you're married, you have three kids, mm-hmm. and uh, a business, you have a house, you have a home, and and you're you're doing stand-up. Like, I feel like I've just been doing stand-up. And I put all that <laughs> other stuff, and, and it hasn't been an easy road for you. Right. And I feel like now approaching 50... You're just getting into a space where you're finally able to catch your breath. Sure. Does that is that what that feels like for you? Um, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit more. More so, like. Hold on. So hilarious! I just had a, one of my neighbors knock on the door asking for <laughs> milk and butter. I thought that was a thing that happened in like <laughs> the fifties. Yeah, I've never seen that happen. <laughs> never once has a neighbor actually asked. For condiments from me before, <laughs> well, that's crazy because you crazy. live in a in a in right. a neighborhood. Yeah, I have like a very suburban life, <laughs> and no one has ever knocked on my door. And you live in a fifteen hundred unit condo, and just boom, hey, you got any milk and butter? The best part was t- tell them about your milk. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, so <laughs> I'm so embarrassed by this. 
I go in the fridge because I'm like, I don't have milk milk, but I have hemp milk. Right. But then I check the date, and it expired in May. Right, and we're squarely in September. September. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best. I'm glad I found out because I, I, I think there's a part of me that was going to have some hemp milk today without even checking the date, and oh, I would have. You would have known. Yeah, I would have been a bunch of clunk, clunk, clunks uh, being dumped out of here. Such an awesome interruption. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Ron. <clears throat> Let's let's go back. Let's go back. Uh, every time we have a conversation, there's always a, a very a deep and profound conversation. Your life story is uh, remarkable. And it's one that is a testament to me of uh, uh, when they, people talk about love is the way or love is the answer. Uh, and because that when you when you were talking when we were talking yesterday at lunch, that's all I was hearing was like you you everything that you've gone through with your family with your work, um, uh, and you have just continued to just keep loving and accepting and moving forward. And I know there's a part of you that you know. You're like, you see where you've dropped the ball. Right. 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 So, but I see a guy who is still here when some people uh, not necessarily wouldn't be here, but would have divorced, would have uh, left the family, would have avoided uh, responsibilities would have not taken accountability for things that have happened. Sure. Um, and and just would have been, and but you have a story of and, and even if you don't want to call it love, it it feels like a story of you just kept showing up. Which is why you're in the position you're in now to breathe because you showed up. Right. Right? Yeah. Can we can we go back to because I right, well right now Tell, tell us the story about where you are now, about the software. Oh, right. So the software was it, was, it was an opportunity. I just saw a friend ask for help, mm -hmm. right? He had a security company. He asked for help at this large music event in Wisconsin. So we went, and um, I just observed how disorganized it was and how he wasn't being productive, how his time was being spent, in part because he, and I told you, he's more about the sizzle than the steak. He was really about image and not about substance. So I saw a lot of waste and inefficiencies. So I visualized, um, first of all, what the process would be to be smoother and how it would work better for him if he followed these certain things. And then I thought, what kind of tool can do that? Well, it's software. So we could plug this into a computer and his office management could take over and the software would really handle everything for him and take some of the responsibilities away, the physical doing responsibilities from his managers. So, so I created it with a partner of mine, and when we presented it to him, he wanted it for free. He was like, yeah, that's really sweet. Uh, why don't you give it to me? And I was like, no, nah, that's not how this works. We don't just give this stuff away. So I went to his competitor, <coughs> and I was like, listen, I made this for your competitor, and he didn't want it but you have the same inefficiencies just based on the process, and this will iron those out for you. And he loved it and brought it on board. 
And so I gave it to him actually for the first six months to use for free, just to beta test so we could test it and see how it goes. And we ironed it out and it turned into an awesome thing. And then he passed it off to the Minnesota Wild, uh, the NHL, a hockey team, and told them that they have some inefficiencies that this software could address. And so they brought us in and we uh, previewed it for them and they loved it. And now they're one of our clients. So that's opened up the door to the NHL. And that's very cool and exciting. And then in talking about it with a buddy of mine who works in construction, he's a senior VP for a large construction company. Um, he said that he was looking for some things and he goes, can you, can your software do this? And, and I'm kind of speaking vaguely just because uh, we don't have all the IP protections in place yet. But uh, I said, yeah, that's ultimately what the functionality was when we created it. So it would really just be kind of dumbing it down for what it is now and then tweaking it to make it work for what you want. And so next week, we're going to him uh, to present it to him. And if he likes it, uh, which he's already, all the stuff that we've talked about, he says, this is exactly what we're looking for. So he's going to put it in place. And we're on the verge of being able to launch nationwide. Uh, in, you know, in, in theory, if everything goes really, really well, I won't have another job. This would be my job in, inside of 12 months. So everything is spooling up and spinning and taking off. It's so much faster than even two years ago that I imagined it would be. So that's kind of the long and the short with the software. B there's there's three things I want to uh, hook into and unpack. One is um, you, this opportunity arose because you were doing a favor for a friend. Right. You weren't being paid for this. Right. right. Well, we were being paid a really low level amount of money. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and and so this is but this is more of like let me just go see what this is right. and check this out. Yeah. Um. And so it wasn't about the money for you. Is no. the point, right? Right. Because exactly. you, you weren't you weren't being paid what you should have been paid for right. the services rendered. And then the second thing was that he said no mm -hmm. to to purchasing it. Right. And instead of you getting stuck into this argument about the value of it and why don't you take it or whatever, you recognize your own value and the value of what you created, and you said, right. "Well, I'm going to go somewhere else." Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the third part was that um, something better happened for you. Yeah. I right? Know. You, you know, you went into this thing, like, I'm just going to look at the systems, blah, 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 and then hope maybe I could sell it to this guy. But then it gets sold to the NHL. Right. Which is something right. you weren't even thinking about, yeah, right? Absolutely. That, that not. was like, what? Yeah, we were thinking best case scenario, maybe some small theaters and small management companies might be interested in it. And it was just going to be a thing to sort of feather the nest a little bit. Right. And maybe it would evolve into something a little bit bigger and larger events here and there. Um, like we took it to the Minnesota Vikings and asked if they would look at it. And they looked at it and uh, they liked it, but they're required because, you know, the, the Vikings are an employee of the NFL. Like, that's it. The NFL is the company. The Vikings are just right. some in. So they're required by the NFL to use a different software. And he goes, we can't. We love it, but we can't. So thanks, but no thanks. So that was a, a big setback, and it made us reevaluate, well, maybe we're not ready for that league anyway. Maybe that was just biting off more than we could chew. And then, you know, less, less than 18 months later, the NHL says, well, we like what you do. So 
and and then that can be used for leverage to then get the NFL yeah. later on. Right. You don't exactly. need the NFL immediately. Yeah. You go take a smaller bite. Yep. Yeah, and the nice thing with the Minnesota Wild is it's not only for them and their hockey operations, but they own two other arenas in addition to the arenas they're in. So we get all of the events they do at three of their locations. And then in addition to all the other things that we were already doing over the course of one calendar year, my software is probably organizing and managing five to 8,000 events through the course of a year. Now, the reason why this is all very powerful is because I remember, you know, I, I stayed at your house because uh, I was on the road, yeah. and, um, and and Ron was very kind to let me stay there. Uh, what, like, it, was it a week? Yeah, roughly. And yeah. Um, and didn't charge me anything. Very kind. Uh, fed me a lot of PB&Js. <laughs> I remember the PB&Js. Mm -hmm. And... Um, because you're a picky eater. And then I, I can't remember if it was before I stayed there or after. Um, you're, you were asking money for your mortgage, to pay your mortgage from your neighbors. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk us through the circumstances around that? Yeah, that was, uh, that was a dark uh, time. We, yeah, we had... Uh, have to regroup for a second. I didn't think you remember. I didn't know you remember all of that. <clears throat> we, if if it's too much, we don't have to talk about it. No, I mean because it's it's you know it's a reality. It's a part of the set. It's a part of the dark days for sure. Um, we had a unique funding situation with our house, and things were coming due, and they were coming due hard and fast. And there was a lot of um, like in two thousand nine when the economy tanked, uh, she and I were both unemployed. We both lost our jobs. And, you know, it's hard enough when one person loses their job. But we both had nothing, and we burned through everything just that quick. And my parents weren't wealthy. I didn't have a lot of, you know, family that I could lean on for help. And uh, so we were, we were in, at one point, um, I was scrambling to try and come up with 25 grand to pay just to get to zero. Like, that's all I needed to just get to zero where the hustle didn't stop. It just took care of the hounds that were at the door, but it wasn't stopping what was still coming. So, yeah, so right around then, um, there was a lot of begging and borrowing and overextending and taking on bad loans and high interest and, and scrambling. So, um, and then still trying to make sure, you know, the kids were eating and they weren't aware of that. Of, of what was happening. They they have no clue. If you talk to them today, they didn't know what was going on. Kids shouldn't know. They, you know. they shouldn't know that this might be the last night in our house. Mm. So, yeah, we had, <coughs> at one point, uh, Heidi just kind of gave up, and she's like, I'm just going to start packing. We need to pack up. This is it. And that was almost literally the 11th hour, and I said, I'm not packing, not accepting that that's where we are. Something's going to happen. I'm going to hit the right chord, and everything's going to be okay. And uh, <laughs> she, she kept packing, and I just kept plugging, and and it worked out. What, can, can you, how, how did it, how did you work that out? How did you <coughs> go from needing $25,000 to get to zero? Right. To... It you was... Got, you got... I'm assuming you got some loans from your neighbors. 
Yeah, I got uh, we got help from neighbors. Uh-huh. I got help from friends. Um, there was uh, it was every bit of pride I had swallowed, yeah. and and you know, it, but it was also assuring people that I was going to come through. If you can do this, you're going to repay them. You'll get it back. You'll get it back, and then whatever extra I can find. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, neighbors were amazing. We just got it was overwhelming the people who said yes but the other side was it was also stunning the people who said no and they didn't say no because they didn't have it they said no because on principle they didn't want to put out a significant amount of money to a friend because friendships and relationships you know money ruins those things and so i had to respect that um it, it, it this sounds petty but also remember it you know absolutely <clears throat> yeah i'm like i came to you and I was beyond destitute, and you still said no. Do you? Could you? Do you? Could you tell the difference between the people who said yes and the people who said no? Does that does that question make sense? No. Like, was there? Because <coughs> um, you were surprised by the people who said no. Yeah. But you're also surprised by the people who said yes. Right. So. What was the through line? Like, for, for the people who said yes, like, why were you surprised? Because they were, because I'm assuming then you're saying that the people who, who you weren't really friends with but were aware of right. were the ones who lent you the money, then the people yeah. you were friends with were the ones who didn't lend you money. Right, yeah. Like, one of, uh, one of the people is, is my partner in my business now. And he, uh, he's like, well, I'll help you. And it was that easy. I just told him, I'm like, this is what I'm wrestling with. And so if I seem distracted, because this was our, uh, the business was really in its infancy. It was just, we're kind of piecing it together. And, uh, and I was distracted. And I said, well, this is what I have going on. And he goes, I'll give you, you know, what, what can I give you? And I, I said, this is what I need. Well, I can't give you all of that, but I'll give you this much. And I was stunned because we didn't even have, um, and into his, cr- we, we're friends now, but we're not like best friends. We're business partner friends who get each other, you know, in a, in a cool way. But he didn't even think twice about it. It was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of this, no problem. But he also said that he saw the future and what we were trying to build. So he didn't mind having that sort of an investment um, in his mind. Another one of the neighbors uh, in my neighborhood just said, we're not, uh, we're not loaning you money so much as investing in our neighbors you're good people and we want you to be here and i was like that's insane because they were we were very friendly with them but not friendly like sure give us a call if you need anything at all but yeah they uh they wrote the check and you know we paid them back as soon as we were able in fact sooner than we expected because i gave them it'll be back to you by this time and we got it back to them sooner and that was important you know, I paid my business partner back, and uh, and in addition to that, from him specifically, then it kind of became my mission to make this software more. Like, this is this is a thing that not only did I pay you back what I owed you, but I'm going to give you more. This business isn't going to grow into a thing, so you're never going to have to think about money again. You invested in me, you know, so let's make this a bigger, better thing. Um, and then uh, one of the people who said no was a longtime friend. 
from way back, and he had and still has the means. He he could write a check for a pretty large amount and not blink. And he's like, uh, no, I'm not going to help you out. And, and that kind of stunned me. But the more I think about his personality, he's a very black and white person. He doesn't really dwell in the grays. And, and it doesn't surprise me that he said no. He doesn't. He just doesn't. He's not that person. And it's always going to be a no, no matter who asks him. It'd be, have to be a really um, strong, hard situation for him to go, okay, I'll help you out. Uh, in, you know, and in hindsight, I'm glad that he didn't uh, because he would have been a hard person to owe money to. Like the other people who lent it, never once knocked on my door, never once asked, is, you know, is the money coming? They just sat back and said, when you can, do. So, you know, I, I really <coughs> love that answer you gave about your neighbor saying uh, it's not so much about you, but investing in the neighborhood. Right. Because because yeah. that makes so much sense. It's like if you lose your home and your family moves out, we don't know who's going to move in there. Right. And what they're going to do. Yeah. And if they're going to increase or decrease the property, be better the devil you know than the devil. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And since then, we've really decreased the property value, too. So <laughs> I don't mow my lawn ever. <laughs> no, it's, but it was very cool, and they're really great people. And uh, for me, I, if somebody comes to me, and I've loaned money since then to people. I had a buddy who, you know, coincidentally ended up killing himself, but he came to me one day in really dire straits, and he's like, I need... I need $300 or I'm out like now. I have to pay my rent. I need $300. It has to be cash. I can't wait for anything to clear. And like, all right, you know, meet me here. I'll give you the money. He goes, you're not going to ask any other questions? You need the money, man. I'll give you the money. It's not that I can just give $300 out, but I had $300. And it wasn't killing me to let him have it. And I recognized the fact that it might not come back. I knew... He was kind of wonky about some things. But, you know, to his credit, three days later, he was back with $300 for me. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and sadly, uh, about 18 months ago, he killed himself. But you know, he was wrestling with a lot of stuff. And I gave him, I gave him a respite from his demons for a minute, mm -hmm. you know. So if you can, you should. It's, you know, <coughs> what's interesting is when he asked you for that 300 he really needed, like, 3000 yeah, I'm you sure. Know? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I would have said no to three thousand. There's no way Heidi was gonna let me give up three thousand dollars without telling her. <laughs> uh, poor Roger. <laughs> and and so you go from that to uh, now, like you said, looking to move your family or right. you and Heidi out here and. Uh, to Los Angeles, right? right? And you're, you're looking for a location because you you really want your comedy career to take off. And, right. Um, like, and I love what you said. You said it's, it's better to get a no in Minneapolis than a – or a, a no in L.A. Right. than a no in, in – Yeah, the no's are much higher quality out here. <laughs> you can collect a no from Snowfall. That's so, so much better than a no from – Cub Foods grocery store that's only, you know, in five locations. Yeah. <laughs> so, absolutely. 
Yeah, let me let me not get on Orange is the New Black. That'd be so much better to tell people I auditioned for that. Right, I was close. I was yeah. I was up for it. It exactly. was it was came down to yeah. me and, and Idris Idris Alba. Right. Elba and that happens a lot, really. Idris and I are up for a lot of the same roles. Um, let let's go back to your childhood. Yeah. Right, because. Uh, you have a you have a fascinating uh, childhood with uh, the relationship between you and your father, right? Um, and I only I'm only bringing it up because of I'm so in it, I'm in no place to say this, but I'm so proud of how you handled things once he passed away, mm-hmm. right? Because y- you you could have held on, and and not to say that there's not emotion still there, because there's a lot of emotion still there. Yeah, but you you kept moving forward, right? Can you you know because I know listeners are like, what are you talking? So can you talk to us about your childhood with you and your father, sure, and then uh, up to his passing? Yeah. Uh, so well, he married my mom uh, in 1973, and I was born in 1970. So at that point, there were already four kids. Right, my mom was an immigrant from Germany, and she in 1966 she got pregnant with my older brother, and then she and he came to America, um, and thought they were going to meet up with his birth dad. And that didn't happen. He basically ditched him on the shore. So my mom met another guy, um, and then she got pregnant with my sister, and uh, also then with me. And we're in Minnesota at that point, and. I don't know exactly what happened there. He left my mom, uh, and um, my mom had another, my brother, with someone else. uh, And then she met my dad, my stepdad, and he married her in 1974, and then they had my younger sister. So five kids all together, and my dad adopted the four kids that were already there, which was, you know, that's a big thing, to just step up and go, I get it. Kind of a sorted story, but I got this. Right, your stepdad adopted. Stepdad, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he adopted all of us, and um, he uh, and I do I do material on this on stage. Um, He was not really. He was in over his head right out the gate, like overmatched immediately. But his his dad was a, a World War II vet, and he was a Vietnam vet, so there's not a lot of communication. Right. <laughs> They weren't talkers. There's not a lot of hugging. That's not what happened. Like my dad's. Wow. My dad's idea of raising kids was: I put a roof over your head. We're killing it. Yeah. That's it. Right. That was what he felt his obligation was: put a roof, make sure you had food, yeah. and 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 so there was a lot of, um, like our chores were pretty extreme, because he had a big property, and we were going to take care of it, even as a six-year-old. You know, I'd get up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning and be out working in the yard with him and doing all this stuff. Because that's he. I think he looked at us as kind of a labor source more than his kids, right? He had things he wanted to accomplish, and he put that on hold to take over this family. So now this family's going to help accomplish these things. So kind of like indentured servants, you know. <clears throat> um, and he was a real strict disciplinarian, especially towards my younger brother and I. Um, there was a, his... His discipline was always physical abuse. It just was. But he didn't look at it as abuse. He looked at it as discipline. So, you know, there were beatings all the time. 
and it was always with a belt. If it wasn't with a belt, he was probably in a better mood, and it just came off his hand then. But the amount of times I had to go to school um, and explain the bruises all over my body, right. where like people were like, Ron, what's up? You know, why, why are you all bruised? And I'd just walk away. I don't know how to answer that question. You're eight, you're nine, you're 10, you're 12. You don't know how to answer that question. But I do know enough to know that he'd probably get in trouble if I'm like, oh, you know what, that's where my dad hit me, or, or whatever. Um, and some of, the, some of the disciplinary tactics, like he thought, we talked about a little bit yesterday, he thought I had done something wrong. And I might well have, because, you know, I mean, I was a, I was a, I was a young boy. Um, and to get me to admit to whatever it was, he sat me at the table and spoon-fed me red pepper. Like, that's it, you're just going to eat this until you own up to what you did. And it, I don't know what I did, whether I did it or not. It's irrelevant. You just, you don't do that to a kid, right? And my mom is sitting at the table with him mm. and not stopping it. And I'm like, that's, now I look back and go, that's not right. How could you let him keep doing that? But she was in a position where he basically rescued her. You know, she was an immigrant and she, she needed to stay. She had these kids now. And had to take care of it, so I think she. So she felt like <coughs> she was probably like an indentured servant a on, a, on a certain level, also. Right, right, yeah. Right. She had to allow things to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you know, and then the physical abuse with my younger brother and I was pretty constant, and um, it went up. I remember being uh, like 16 years old, and I don't know what the situation was, but he grabbed me and threw me across the room. And as he was throwing me, I grabbed his arm just out of instinct, you know, to just hang on so I wasn't going to fly across the room. And he pulled me back, and he uh, basically cocked back his fist and said, don't even try it. Like he assumed I was going to try and retaliate. Right. And that wasn't my thinking. My thinking was just steady myself. Because I was a little kid. Like, even at 16, I was like 5'3", so not big. I was easy to be tossed one time. Uh, I don't know what I did again, but... Uh, he kicked me, like literally kicked me in the ass. And he always wore steel toe shoes. And I started hurtling towards a wall. And my brain was like, you know what? Hit that wall as hard as you can with your head. Just smash straight into that wall and make him feel guilty for what he did. And I hit the wall and I did not get knocked out. <laughs> so it was, turned out to be a really dumb plan. <laughs> so I just got a big old knot on my head to match the one he put on my ass. And I was like, damn, this is not working. <laughs> And, so. and 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 so you have a father who is uh physically verbally abusive right and and then cut to a few years ago where and now he was in a hospital what did what was he uh in a hospital for what was he dying from well he, he um he was l right up at the end he was diagnosed with leukemia okay um and that was from agent orange exposure in Vietnam. Wow. And we didn't know about that up until the end. Like, so he didn't even talk about that stuff? We knew that he had been exposed, yeah. uh, and we knew, because we had been sort of pursuing it through the VA, and um, typical of the, of the VA, things got bogged down in the bureaucracy, and the claim was denied, and then there were a couple other vets that had rallied around him and provided some more information, um, but he died before there could be any kind of a conclusion on it. But we... Um, uh, he was just getting thinner and thinner, and he wasn't eating much, and he was sleeping all the time. So we took him in, and they ran some tests on him, and the doctor's like, his red count is insane. 
he's definitely got leukemia. And so we put him in hospice care because that's where they were at. They said, this is, this is sort of the end of the road for him. You need to think about his end of life stuff. And he was already battling dementia at that point. So we weren't really sure how much of this was related to dementia and him just not eating and taking care of himself right. versus general health issues. And uh, so we put him in to uh, hospice and he was diagnosed with leukemia um, like the first part of August and he died two and a half weeks later. That is, you know, when, you know, we, there's always that running joke about Vietnam vets and you, you just don't understand, man. Right. And it's true. Yeah. It, because when we think about, well, at least when I think about war, I just think about shooting. Sure. Right? Sh shooting back and forth, shooting each other, bombs, uh, loss of limbs, yeah. uh, maybe you're a prisoner, uh, you know, uh, mosquitoes. The well, thing I always think about, <laughs> the, the only thing I think about, like, when I watch war movies, <laughs> when I watch Vietnam or any of those World War II movies, yeah, right. like, the shooting doesn't really get me. Even when I see a leg go flying, being a, none of that gets me. The only thing that gets me are the mosquitoes. When I see them, <laughs> I can't. I remember watching, I think it was Full Metal Jacket or Platoon, and yeah. they're going through the jungle. Right. And, man, you know, they are, we had already seen, like, a couple of guys getting blown up, yeah. and I'm in it. And then I see a guy smack his neck because a bug <laughs> right. bit him. Right. And I was like, nope. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> That's it. That's uh, it. Do not do well with bugs. <laughs> I That's hilarious. Wow. You have led a, a blessed life. <laughs> I can't. I can't do it, man. And, and it, it's, it's because when I grew up, every summer, my mom would send me and my sister to Belize. And sometimes my mom would come along also. Well, most of the time she would. And um, they had a lot uh, they had a huge bug mosquito problem in Belize. Oh, okay. Like the bugs would just eat you up. Sure. 24 7. Right. It didn't matter what you put on. <laughs> to the point where we had to sleep with a net over our bed to keep wow. the bugs out. And then finally they came through and they sprayed whatever they, I don't know what they sprayed. Yeah. No bug problem. Oh. So there's not a bug problem, but then there's also some residual cost to yeah, sure. A slight whatever. tumor problem. Yeah. Whatever yeah. you're breathing in. <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> Which is real. I had a, I have a friend of mine, not to get like way off track, but uh, she lives in a complex, and in her apartment complex here in Los Angeles, they had a huge bug problem because yeah. they had a bunch of plants uh, in the like courtyard. Sure. And then, so of course, the management comes in and they spray all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then my friend was had this cough and she couldn't get rid of the cough. Oh right. And she goes to her dietitian. They run some tests, and she had a huge pesticide. Yeah. Um, count or whatever and it was this right. probably nine times out of ten <coughs> from all the bug spray and stuff right. so i guess the the bigger point is that there's so many things that could be affecting us mm -hmm. our behavior mm -hmm. our moods our attitudes right that we ourselves aren't don't even understand or are aware of i don't know what i'm breathing in right you stay in a hotel right right it smells good but it smells good for a reason like that's a right. chemical it's exactly. not yeah yeah they're not like sprinkling roses through the hallways, right. you know? Right. Uh, and we don't know how that, you know, it's just like with the diet soda and mm -hmm. aspartame and 
and I'm looking at this list of um, the the diseases caused by Agent Orange. It's like mm-hmm. leukemia, like what, what your father had, yeah. Hodgkin's disease, uh, multiple myeloma, yeah. uh, which is another form, Parkinson's, mm-hmm. uh, prostate, like all the cancers. It's yeah. like right, yeah, and they just, I mean, it it rained over them. Yeah, know, they were walking through it, and and nobody knew, and nobody cared. And so you couple that, he's, he's like 18 mm-hmm. in the war. Right. And then you get the Agent Orange, mm-hmm. and you, you, he grew up without any, uh, any type of uh, communication right. skills. Uh, yeah. any, no soft skills. Right, right, exactly right? correct. And now he's yeah. raising five kids. Right, yeah. And, and, and I'm not, we're not letting him <laughs> off the hook at all. Agreed. But – I'll, but I always love the I always love context mm-hmm. for things, right? Um, because that also gives context to you as a parent now, right? With three kids, right? Right, and so your father goes through all that. He passes away from leukemia, mm-hmm. and then uh, can you tell us the dagger with the with the life insurance? <laughs> yeah, wow. So we spent. Um, I lived uh, roughly an hour from him, yeah. and it was the most convenient for me to go back and forth. Um, and, and coincidentally, I had lost my job in March of the year he died, mm-hmm. <coughs> which at the time seemed just horrendous, right? Out of work, got it, okay. But it offered me the opportunity to basically go every day to see my dad and to take him to his doctor appointments and, and help him out with everything that he needed to have helped out yeah. without realizing that we were battling leukemia. It just seemed like dementia, right? That's what I thought was happening. Wow. So, um, so he would call me up and say, I, sp- I spilled my pills all over the counter. Can you come and help me? Which for him was pretty significant to actually ask for help because he's never been the person mm. who asked anyone to help him with anything. Mm. He always decided, I, if I ask for help, I'll probably be disappointed, so I'll just do it myself. So, you know, that was significant. So I come over, and I help put his pills back where they're supposed to be, and we take him to his appointments and, and take care of his house and all of these things. And, um, and it was hard, you know, to deal with that because now I'm essentially parenting him and having to swallow a lot of anger as I think about how he parented me. And the roles were really reversed. And so I, you do it because you have to do it. You know, and at one point... At one point, he, in a moment of lucidity, says, I'm sorry for how I raised you. I could have done things differently. That's as deep as he would get. That's all he would allow. I could have done things differently. And I told him, I said, uh, it's okay. You did the best you knew how, which was not untrue. He didn't know better. He, you know, I'm sure he knew that he was heavy-handed, but his dad was heavy-handed. He didn't know that this isn't how you do it. So, fine. And you think, <clears throat> my dad was heavy-handed. I turned out okay. Right. So, you'll be okay. Right. Right? That, I mean, it's that's that type of simple. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and you see it all the time. Uh, we got spanked as kids, and look at how we turned out. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, not well. You didn't turn out well. <laughs> you <laughs> think you turned out well, but right. that's because you don't know better. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, so... He, uh, he dies, and just shortly before he died, um, when we did a deep dive into his finances, and we saw in what kind of disarray they were, uh, we also found out he had canceled his life insurance policy. 
which was sort of, uh, it was the ultimate fuck you, really, to the family. Because as he got towards the end of the end of his life, he became much more of a hoarder, and he became fiercely territorial of all of his things. Mm. Because he was aware that we were starting to take things away and sell them to try and settle his debt. He had collected cars and tractors and a bunch of things over the course of his life, and we had been secretly auctioning them off, not out of spite, but out of need, because there was this massive amount of debt that he was no longer, he, he was getting a social security check and that's it, and that doesn't cover much. Um, so it was a secret, and, and he didn't know, but he kind of knew because we wouldn't let him go to the garage anymore. And there were different locks put on the garage, so he couldn't get in it, so he couldn't see his cars and things. Um, so he canceled that life insurance policy in part because he didn't want us to get any benefit out of his death. This, you don't get anything from me. And, uh, you know, and then that morning when he died, I had to go to the funeral home and discuss the plans for, for his service. And I'm sitting there... And funerals are expensive. Like, you don't even know what everything costs money. And there's cheap stuff. Like, we had them cremated, and they're rolling out these urns. This urn is $700. This urn is $1,500. And I was like, what, what do you have that's not fancy? And in literally, a black plastic box. That was it. A black plastic box uh, with a little plastic clip on it. And I think that was like $300. For a box a you could have made, you could have got at Paper Source, exactly or correct. Target. It was yeah, it was, it was like, like a, a it was like a Michaels box. or Joanne's Fabrics <laughs> craft box, and I was like, damn. And it only got worse. Like I got him the cheapest casket, and we rented the casket for his memorial service. And you can rent a casket. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean. That's kind of more. Oh, oh I got you, you because you cremated. The right. Actual, but yeah. Right. And they take him out. Gotcha. And then he. So so we rented a casket. And I think that came in uh, at like twelve hundred dollars to rent. Wow. And, and that's you know, that's for um, there's a visitation day and then the actual day and the body's on display. So you're renting this box for like three days. And um, so you pay for that. You have to pay for he's staying in the funeral home. So you're essentially renting the space. And the only thing we didn't have to pay for was when um, the local VFW, you know, did the military tribute for him. They do that for all the veterans, so we didn't have to pay for the 21-gun salute they did. But everything else, and the funeral ended up coming out to just about uh, $9,000, and you have to pay half of that immediately. Like, before we do anything, this is what we need from you. And then the other half is due right after the service. It's valuable that people hear the cost of funerals because because yeah. people who think about completing suicide they go oh once I'm not here right. uh, everything is is Man. it's all over like uh, you know everybody right. will be happy you think the right no right. not if you're leaving a nine thousand dollar yeah right exactly <laughs> yeah. correct and and that was the thing and I uh, I went to my sister and I said this is the bill and they need money now and. I, I didn't have it, right? So now we're thinking, got to talk to the aunts and the uncles who were aware of what was going on. But um, my sister and her husband are like, we got it. So they just put his funeral on their credit card. Wow. And, and th you know, that was a very cool thing for them to do. But they didn't budget for that. Nobody sat back and goes, well, you know, we have this $10,000 just laying around. I guess we can pay for the funeral. So, you know, that was a very cool thing. And then... As an aside, 
seven days later, Heidi's brother died. So, you know, it was just an emotional steamroller. Right. Well, we're still processing all of this with my dad dying. Uh, her brother is dying, and eventually it's so... Uh, but yeah, back to him. He basically got rid of anything that would help us after he died. What, what I'm... What, I'm, uh, what empower Not empowers, but... Um, what I'm what I'm fascinated by is your capacity to continue showing up for your father, yeah. right after your childhood, after the abuse. You said he's sick. I'm gonna put that to the side, right. and I'm gonna still drive an hour to go see him. An hour back, right. being unemployed, he passes away, and you're like, I'm still gonna help pay, finance, figure this out, right, right, and. You just, you keep going. And you didn't have to do this. I mean, yeah, you're your son, and you, ex you expected the children to, but there right. are plenty of kids who sure. would not have, would have disappeared, or been like, it's not my problem. Yeah. He has brothers and sisters. Let right. them handle it. But you kept uh, showing up, right? Yeah. Where do, you, where do you get that from? Because it's not just about your father. No. That's that's a that's a characteristic that yeah um, I don't know um, when my grandparents were sort of end of lifing when my grandpa died my grandpa died first and my uncle my dad's brother was he lived in the same town as my grandma did so he was coming over all the time and helping her with her finances and trying to navigate the path. Then my grandparents were pretty well set, so there wasn't a lot of financial responsibility outside. They were able to write the checks to take care of it. But my uncle, um, who's brilliant with money and taking care of things like that, every night he would come over and he would help my grandma, his mother, you know, navigate all these things. And I remember her talking to my dad about it once, and she said, Bruce keeps coming over and he keeps helping, and I feel so bad, and I thanked him uh, for it, and I, she said, I don't know how to repay him, and he said to her, Mom, this is why we're here, to be of service to each other. Mm. And this, it, it just, that's, you know, just made sense to him, and that always stuck in my head that if you can, you do. You know, the point is to help as much as you can, if you can, so I don't know if that was impactful and planted the seed i don't think um i don't know i don't I, it's hard to say where did it come from because we didn't have a real close-knit emotional emotionally linked tight family there wasn't a lot of sentimentality and and affection in the house i mean my mom was born and raised in germany you know, she was born in 1944. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with Germany in the 40s. <laughs> Not a warm, fuzzy place, right? So that's where my mom came out. Is of. it warm, fuzzy now? Yeah, but with a much... <laughs> yeah, yeah, much right. Much the less porn is better. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about it. <clears throat> but but they, So, you know, she came from a dark place. And my dad married a dark woman. And so, you know, where did it come from to be of service... Uh, my grandma, his mom, was the sweetest, most saintly person in the world. Mm. So maybe from that, um, and Heidi's family is they're they're huggy and right. emotionally supportive, wow. you know. So so I don't know where it came from. <laughs> huggy, they're, they're huggy, yeah, they're a huggy group, which was very off-putting to me. 
when I first met. Right. Because I'm not huggy. No, you know, I tried to hug you. I remember the first time I tried you, you were not yeah, having it. That's a weird thing. <laughs> I'll hug you all day now. Nah, nah, yeah, no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Hugging is a weird thing for me, but I've gotten better at it. Uh, but well, you know, and we still don't, we don't, we don't, we do the, the, the double pat. The right, pat, yeah, pat. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah almost, get in, get out. <laughs> almost like a TSA, yeah, yeah. you're good, get on the plane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I scram, kid. That's exactly right. It's with affection. That's though. all you need. <laughs> right. the, speaking of, of Heidi and her family, you, yeah. uh, you know, listen to your story, I'm realizing and that it, on some level, you kind of did what your stepdad did, right? Because he had. He essentially adopted five kids, right? Four right? kids, yeah. Four kids, right? And then you, because the three kids you have, those are were those all Heidi's, um, or one of them? Two of them Heidi had when I met her. Okay. And then the youngest one is ours. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there was it was a, a on a on a smaller scale. Right. There was that, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And did you? Was there a point where you felt like you kind of had bitten off more than you could chew? Oh man! <laughs> Every damn day. <laughs> Every day, it's a. And it, but it wasn't just like, especially early on, and we had a lot of bumps going right. in early, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so it was really challenging early. First, because I didn't know how to be a parent, and because the role model I had didn't know how to be a parent, so I brought bad habits in just from a parenting perspective, um, and uh, th- and that was really hard, and that was a. There was a conversation I had with my son a couple couple years ago, probably maybe four years ago, where we, we sat down and I, I basically just said, listen, uh, I didn't do you right. I could have been better. I should have been better. And you didn't deserve some of the things that I brought to you. And I told him, I said, I wasn't raised right either. My examples weren't good, but that's not an excuse. And I recognize my missteps with you. And I said, I hope you can understand that it wasn't malicious. It was just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. And I'm sorry. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. And he looked at me and he goes, we're good. You don't have to worry about it. I appreciate your apology, but we're good. And you know, that was a heavy moment and you know, and you and I talked about this eighteen months ago or something like that, when things were really going heavy with my dad, and I was really wrestling with with the emotional trauma of it all. And I told you, and it was the first time I said it out loud, and it really stunned me to even hear me say it. He made me a bad parent. That's what he gave me. He gave me all the wrong tools, and I had to somehow figure it out. And I didn't, as a young man. I emulated his brother, who never had kids. He married his college sweetheart. They got a great corporate job, and they traveled the world and had a nice house, and they still haven't got any kids, you know, and they're retired now, and I always thought that's what I wanted to be. And early on in my adult life, I took great strides to emulate that. And, uh, and I was married previously, and she and I never had kids. And, and that was the goal. It was about accomplishing these material things and and then, um, and she and I got divorced, and I moved back to Minnesota, and I met Heidi, and the kids, and you know, as I went down that path, I started recognizing that I essentially was becoming my dad more than my uncle, with you know, following in the footsteps. And I even, when I, uh, when I eulogized my dad, 
I told a story about as like a 10-year-old. We had this big table in our laundry room, and all the laundry would just get dumped on the table. And then uh, us kids would usually go through and sort it and fold it. And then you could come down and get what you needed. And I remember taking my dad's underwear out of the dryer. And he was a big guy. Uh, he had like a, a 38 or 40-inch waist. And I held up the underwear, and I was like, damn, I'll never fit into something this big ever. And then, you know, you go through life, and I was telling stories about him and being raised by him. And uh, I said, it turns out that uh, it, it was the shoes I couldn't fill. Wow. And, you know, that was, that was sort of the thing, was acknowledging that he had imparted more on me than I even wanted to admit. But I never looked at the kids as a burden like he did, like I felt he did. My kids are amazing people, and I couldn't be more proud of them. And I tell people all the time they achieved in spite of me, not because of me. So, How did you and Heidi meet? <laughs> we went to a casting call for a modeling agency who were looking for models and actors. She has a modeling background, and I had been doing TV and stand-up a little bit in Alaska, so when I came down here, I wanted to get back into it. And so we went into, it was like a cattle call, just a room filled with people, and we met with this modeling agency out of St. Cloud, Minnesota, and she was sitting next to me and kind of making snarky comments about the guy who was leading the room. He looked like Gilbert Gottfried, and she kept calling him Gilbert. And then uh, we got a call back, but it, um, didn't know it. And she had just hoped that I'd gotten the call back too. And I got there a little bit late, and she was already in the room. And uh, I walked up, and the seat was open. And she goes, I was hoping it would be you. I've been saving the seat. And I was like... It's Done. Me. Yeah. Done. So I sat with her, yeah. and, and it was, it's been tempestuous ever since. <laughs> 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 but it was very cool. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what I was telling you. Like, you meet the people you meet for a reason, and they cross your path, and maybe they don't stay on your path for long, or maybe they stay for the rest of your life, but they're there for a reason. And, and so mm -hmm. going back to your kids, that's, that's such a, like, a, a beautiful story. So, like, I saved the seat. But you have, like, great stories, man. I can yeah. see you uh -huh. doing a TEDx one day. That's funny. Um, the, you know, your kids are thriving. You're, you know, your son Chandler yeah. is in the military. Right. And uh, yeah. wait, what branch and Air then Force. what level? Yeah, he's, um, he's an E-5. He just, it, he's an E-5 in the Air Force. And if people don't understand how the rank structure works, E-5, E-9 is the highest you get as an enlisted person. Wow. And he got E5 on his first try, which is unusual also, because wow. you have to test for that. Yeah. And he got it right out the gate. And I was in the Air Force. So when he, he's, he's just been amazing his whole life. And I didn't deserve him, it's plain and simple. He's taught me so much about just being kind, because he's that guy. When he was young, he would get tennis shoes the same as the tennis shoes I was wearing. Like he just wanted to emulate me. And the first time he came home, he was so proud wearing these high tops. And I was like, oh, those are like mine. And then I was like, oh, those are like mine. He did that on purpose. And I was floored by it. Like all of a sudden, the responsibility of being a role model just settled on in a pair of tennis shoes. And, um, and he joined the Air Force because I was in the Air Force. And you know that's a decision he made as an 18-year-old, not as not as a as a 
as a wide-eyed six or seven-year-old. This was an adult decision. He was like, my dad did it, and I'm going to do it. And, and we call each other regularly, and he tells me about it and, and asks for advice about how to navigate the political channels of the Air Force. And it's just, it's so... It's beautiful because yeah. you, you <coughs> talk about how you couldn't fill your dad's shoes, and but here Chandler is literally... <laughs> right. Filling your shoes, yeah, and it's, right. It's it's stupid humbling. And and can you because yesterday we talked about because uh, he just got a new leadership position, mm -hmm. and he called you to ask about it, yeah. and and your response to him, the things you said to him were so I was moved. I was like, damn, oh, I wow. wish my father would have. <laughs> can can you can you speak to what he asked you, and then what your response was? Yeah, he was um, he was worried. Because, you know, when we talk about this, he, um, he doesn't see things the same way I see things. Like, he sees a task, and he just starts the task and pushes through until it's done. So he doesn't break it down in pieces or, or portion it out and manage it. He just goes at it until it's behind him. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it's self-defeating. And he was worried about um, the people below him getting the right idea. He was worried about how he was going to lead them and what impression they were going to get. And he was worried about his senior officers and NCOs and the impression they were getting out of him. And he was really worried about failing at this. And, uh, and I was like, dude, listen, it's not about succeeding or failing really right now. It's just a test for you. They want to know what kind of how you're going to answer to stressors and how you're going to respond to these inputs that you might not appreciate or understand. And, you know, how are how are you going to grow into the leader that they're trying to cultivate? And um, I said, you, it's going to work or it isn't. That's the bottom line. And, I'm, and I told him, I said, I, I told him a story about something that I had to do where I was tasked with finding a new vendor for our company. And it was going to be like a millions of dollars situation. And I put all together the information. I went to my boss and I presented all the pros and cons. And he agreed to it, but he said, this is either the best decision I've ever made or the worst decision you've ever made. And I was like, yeah, that's heavy. Because <laughs> it's all, and I told him that. I said, Bubba, because I call him Bubba. I said, Bubba, if you succeed at this, your seniors are going to look brilliant. If you fail at this, you're going to look bad. But it's your first failure. It's not going to haunt the rest of your career. It's your first one. So learn from it and try not to make the same mistakes. But make sure that your airmen don't hear you speaking bad about your senior leadership. They can see you struggle, but don't let them see you fail. Ask for help where you need it mm -hmm. and impart wisdom on them and coach them up as you're going and you're gonna be fine. They already trust you. They're giving you this task. They know that you have the ability. So just grow in it and stop overthinking all of it. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I, I love it. Uh, <coughs> Ron, the book that you, uh, I need to read that book, The Tender Bar. The Tender Bar, yeah. Um, that, that's one of your favorite books. I yeah. think that's the book you would recommend it. Yeah. Are you reading anything now? Because we always talk about books. Right. Yeah. I, if I'm, well, I'm reading a couple of different things. Uh, I've been going on and off with a book called Insane Clown President. Uh, and that's about the current administration. Insane Clown President? Yeah. Come and, on. Uh, it's hilarious because it's an, it's an insightful book. Um, and it's, I mean, it's clearly got an agenda, just based on the title. You can tell they're not fans of the, uh, of the president right now. But they, it's not, I mean, it's facts. They're taking all of these, this is exactly what happened, and they have sources, and, and talking about how destructive he is as a person. Um, 
And then the another one I'm reading uh, is uh, Chris Kattan's book uh, called Baby Don't Hurt Me, which, you know, talks about his growing up in a showbiz family. And people don't know that, you know, his mom was a beauty queen and his dad was a showbiz legend. And he lived in this weird little commune and, you know, he broke his neck on Saturday Night Live. And he talks about uh, being in the Groundlings and he talks about auditioning for Saturday Night Live and not getting it and auditioning with Will Ferrell, who does get it, and Sherry O'Terry. They both get it and he auditions with them and doesn't get it. So he goes back and they go to New York and he goes back to California and he talks about you know, initially being kind of angry, but then coming to terms with it. And then when there's six episodes left in the season, Will Ferrell calls him and says, Lauren, ask me to call. Do you want to come be on the show? So he's, he said it was easy for him to go into it because he had already dealt with the grief of not getting it. Mm. So now, now he's like, yeah, okay, cool. There's no more stress now. Like they called me and said, come be a part of it. So, and, and I worked with Chris a little bit. So it's, um, it's cool to know him on a personal level and then read these stories and hear about the struggles because, I mean, he just got his ass handed to him in so many ways, you know. And we sat there when we were working together. I spent quite a bit of time with him and we talked about my dad and we talked about his upbringing and, and we, had a, well, we had a real good connection, you know, just sharing some of the struggles. So I recommend that, uh, Baby Don't Hurt Me by Chris Kattan. Um, you've been married for how long? Not actually married, uh, but we've been together for 20 years. Oh, hold on, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 right. no, 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 no. Yeah. Wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait. I'm sure I knew this. I think you did. And clearly it's something that a person would forget right. because of everything you and Heidi have been through. Right. Which, first of all, Heidi makes these candles. Her company is Excelsior. Excelsior Candle Company. Excelsior Candle Company. They're amazing because they're soy and plant-based. Yep, super clean. So super clean. (laughs) And for people who don't understand, this is not uh, advertising. She's not paying me for this. But I I order, I pay for the candles. I'm not asking her for free. Like, I I go online. I didn't even ask her for them. I just bought them. Um, And then she saw that I had ordered some and then sent me some extra. But... Uh, what I love is is because it goes back to what are you inhaling with mm-hmm. the Agent Orange and things like that. Right. A lot of these candles that they're they're five dollars, ten dollars. They're cheap because mm. there's so many chemicals in right. there, and you inhale this, and that, and then you wonder why you're congested, yeah. or you have a headache, or you have brain fog, and you don't realize all these different fragrances, mm-hmm. uh, these uh, which are really chemicals. Are causing all these different uh, uh, stressors on your body and mind, um, but with the Excelsior candles, um, which you could get online, I, I get I got mine off of. Uh, I know she has a shop on Facebook. Yeah, she's on Amazon. Oh, too. On Amazon, yeah. Um, <coughs> it's soy and plant based, so you're not going to get that. It's going to burn clean. They yeah, smell with essential great. oils. Essential oils, Very clean candles. Get all that. Yeah. Um, but okay, so <laughs> you guys been together for twenty, but you've been a couples therapy. Yeah. Yes. Can you? You don't have to just tell us why you went to couples therapy, but I'm curious as to was there anything you got from it? Were there were there any tools, tactics, things? Because there's so many couples who struggle with communication right. or or sex or whatever. What did you? Was there anything that you were like, ah, oh, 
thank you for shining a light there. Or... Yeah, um, empathy for one, right? To understand their perspective and to understand that um, they're seeing something maybe different than what you're presenting. So you have to be aware of what you're presenting. How, how am I coming at her? Like, I'm always accused, and this happens all the time, people tell me you're yelling at me. I'm like, I'm not yelling, but uh, I am animated. Yes. <laughs> I am that. animated. <laughs> you need to know that this is me being animated, but yelling is a whole different place. Uh, and I have yelled. <laughs> but um, they're like, you seem angry. Like, this isn't angry. This is just me being very impassioned right now about what I'm saying. Um, but to understand that it's coming across as anger, and that can be threatening. And so you have to uh, try and understand what they see and what, what you're giving them and, and understand that uh, they have a perspective and, you know, the stressors you have uh, might be their stressors too. So to be empathetic to what's happening and try to understand. And, and I honestly learned this in acting class too, and it really surprised me. Um, instead of stepping on somebody's lines, you know, you know what the script says, so you speak your line too soon maybe. And it's the same when you're listening to someone. Listen to what they say and let the thought settle in and then respond. And it's just like with acting. Don't step on their line. Just because you know you have to say this next doesn't mean you don't still hear the line. Let them speak it and absorb it and then go through. So, and you know, and that's a work in progress is stopping and listening to what she says to me and try to understand what she means and to be respectful of it instead of just stomping it down. And that's not a thing my parents were good at. It was just a lot of like legit, they didn't go animated, they went quiet to yelling. And that was the world that I was raised in. So, you know, my mom didn't have a point of view that was valid as far as my dad was concerned and vice versa. So it's really, it's simple, man. Just shut up and listen for a second and give credence to what they're saying. And then tell them they're wrong. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to end there. Where can people find you, Ryan? Uh, right now, I'm actually not going to be out on the road for, well, I'm going to be at uh, the Chankaska Creek Winery here coming up. What's about online? Yeah, online. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> yeah come to Chan, <laughs> listen, Southern Minnesota, everybody in LA, I will save you a seat, I promise. Uh, you'll get a, you'll get a bandana that I sell for merch at wholesale. Um, no, you can find me on Instagram at Ron Lamprecht. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet nearly as much as I should. And then uh, my Facebook page is just kind of wallowing in cobwebs right now. I really focus most on Instagram. Um, is there, I always ask this uh, for every, all the guests, and uh, we understand you're not a mental health professional. Right. But I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on a precipice of yeah. uh, completing suicide. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? Think about how much damage you're doing to the people you leave behind. Do you think that you're doing them a solid by stepping out of the picture? And it's the reverse. It's, I have recently had a friend kill himself, and the destruction you leave behind is so much worse than whatever you think you're causing by living. Stay and push through it, because they want to know you're struggling. They absolutely want to know you're struggling. I've read somewhere, someone said, I would rather sit with you and listen to 45 minutes of your bullshit than have to eulogize you for 15 minutes. And that's, that's it, man. If you're struggling, talk to someone because they want to know. Ron, 
Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you all for listening. Remember, the biggest thank you is uh, that you share the episode, you leave a comment, rate it five stars on iTunes. Uh, I appreciate you for listening in. But also remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get therapy for you. Uh, hold on. I'm going to have to ask this question because the listeners are like, you got, how could you not ask? Why aren't you guys married after 20 years? <laughs> I had hoped that we had danced past that. <laughs> we, we can, I, I, would, uh, I would be. Man, why aren't we? Is, is, it made, is that the right question? Um, the thing is, uh, I don't really have a good answer. We've been together so long that, you know, everything is in place as a partnership. Everything is in place. And, and getting married would seem more like, um, uh, I don't know, like doing it just to do it. Like, is there any Paperwork. value in it? Yeah, right? So you do it as a legal thing. Should we? I, I mean, I suppose. I don't know. We've been always, there's always, let's first accomplish this. And then we were battling so much with the money. We're like, there's no money for that. And I want to do it right. And, and then it became, there were times, honestly, where I didn't even know that we were going to stay together. So the idea of being married didn't even make sense, right, right? right? So it's just been navigating this path where marriage just didn't seem logical because there were so many other things we were dealing with, if that makes sense. So this whole time, you're, you're like, the kids could be like my mom's boyfriend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That doesn't sound good, does it? No. <laughs> no, but they've always called me dad, dad from yeah. like day one. So that would be especially weird if they did that now. <laughs> like I'd have to rethink my impact my on them if they were saying that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're going to end on that. Thank you guys for tuning in. Stay well. Take care of yourself. Take care of your neighbors. Ask them if they need any uh, uh, milk and butter. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you soon.